This is a Tadad podcast. I'm going to give the floor over to our colleague Monica Kalajuri so she can moderate this roundtable. We'll field a few questions after the roundtable from the audience, along with a few final words from our presenters. Monica, thank you. Thank you very much. And it is a pleasure to be here moderating this panel with so many tax administration experts here to help us respond to some questions related to taxes and reflecting on the challenges of international taxation. In previous presentations, we've seen that it's not easy for tax administrations to work with international taxation, be it through tax planning or through the legislation itself. National laws are still often not adapted to all the changes that have been taking place over the last few years. International taxation has its challenges. International taxation in our region, Latin America and the Caribbean, is up against a number of structural challenges. These include low economic growth, high inequality, high risks of fiscal and environmental sustainability. There are many challenges that we need to confront. We also have fiscal policy and fiscal management. We know that they have the potential to play a role in addressing these structural challenges in the region. It can be directly through a government tax measure or indirectly through changes in the behavior of individuals and companies. Changes in all the activity that tax administrations have developed and also with incentives to change this type of behavior. However, tax management, which needs to face these challenges, these fiscal and structural challenges in the region where we are, has many weaknesses within institutional frameworks and policy. Within this context, we have prepared the following question that will be the focus of today's discussion. How can developing countries with restricted capacities in tax management tackle the challenges that may be encountered in international taxation? To discuss this topic and a few questions that we'll put before this panel, we invite Gonzalo Arias, who has taken part in the first part of the podcast. Gonzalo is Director of International Cooperation at the OECD and is well known to everyone. We also have Alberto Barriex with us, who is a cornerstone in the region. I think we all know Alberto. He holds a PhD from Harvard University and he is an expert. He currently serves as a tax consultant, but has been a colleague of mine for many years and is the IDB's leading tax expert. We are also honored to welcome my colleague Ubaldo Gonzalez from the IDB. Ubaldo is also one of the IDB's leading specialists in tax administration. He holds a PhD in law and has extensive knowledge in international taxation. It's a pleasure to have you on this panel. To begin with, We thought we'd ask each of you a question. We don't have much time, but I'd like to start with Gonzalo, based on his experience at CIAT, an IDB strategic partner in tax matters. We have always relied on CIAT, not only for events, but also for developing toolkits, which we can touch on a bit during this panel. Gonzalo, if we think of small countries that are developing, but are still small, that have restrictions on technical capacity and personnel. How can international or multilateral organizations support their tax administrations to overcome these challenges related to international taxation? And also related to this, what exactly might be the approach of support provided to these countries? And with you, Gonzalo. 
Muchas gracias, Monica, y bueno, y colegas. Thank you very much, Monica, and colleagues here at this round table. It's a pleasure to share this time with you. This is a question we ask ourselves every day at CIAT. Because every time we join LinkedIn or participate in meetings and hear that the transparency agenda is advancing more and more, that the BEPS agenda is advancing more and more, and then we see big data, blockchain, artificial intelligence, etc. But then we visited the tax administrations of many developing countries. Because, of course, we have to separate the developed countries from the developing countries. The tax administrations cannot all put themselves in the same bag. We see many shortcomings and many basic needs in these developing countries. And as I said, international taxation depends on the basic pillars of tax administration. We cannot expect the international taxation module to work if these basic pillars do not work. So, I think there are two inevitable things, which are important for all kinds of tax administrations, but mostly for small ones. First, the investment. Anyone thinking there can be improvement without investment is wrong. In other words, at some point you'll have to invest. That is the reality. If we want to increase the frontier of production possibilities for any organization, we will have to invest at some point. The second topic is strategic planning and the intelligent use of resources. You don't have to have the best tax administration in the world to think, how many fronts can I open? Which battles are really worthwhile? And what am I able to do? In other words, not facing what cannot be managed. This is what's happening today in a lot of countries, which is opening up a number of fronts. And, of course, it's hard to come to that conclusion. Because we can say, we're not going to control big companies because we don't have the means. And then I leave an area clear. This is the same as creating a tax haven, even if the regulations don't say that the country is a tax haven. But there's no control, there are no rules. So it's a complex dilemma. What do we do when we try to build capacity in less developed countries? First, we work on a fairly accurate diagnosis. And this allows us to find out if the subject they are requesting support for, because we always work on demand, is feasible, given the present or future availability of resources. Due to the present or future availability of human resources. Given the expectations that countries may have. For example, if the expectation is to collect in one year, but there will be no human resources trained over the next three years, because the matter still needs to mature. It's better to abandon the project because it will not satisfy political expectations, for example, to levy taxes in times of crisis. The availability of infrastructure is also important to review. And something that's even more important that needs to be looked at, even in major international organizations, and that is sometimes more overlooked than it should be, is to present developments with options that allow flexibility for certain countries. Because we really can't have a single shoe size for everyone. So, for example, to have a BEPS action, the 8th, 9th, or 10th, but made more flexible for a developing country so that it is able to apply it. If you could find a way to simplify it where possible, I think it would be more than welcomed by countries that want to be part of this agenda, but for reasons of context or for reasons of resource availability, cannot. The other issue is also political will which basically means a criterion of the state accompanies a criterion of the tax administration. This is very important and we always look at this. When we do projects in countries with fewer resources, we always make a catalog of risks. 
and we find out how to mitigate each risk that may arise during the development of a project in order to achieve the result. And there are many challenges. I have to admit, it's not easy. And I think my answer says something, but it doesn't say everything. There's really no clear-cut solution. Thanks a lot, Gonzalo. There are really so many challenges. We're always present in conversations with governments and tax authorities. And especially in international taxation, there is a need for investment. There are costs associated with database acquisition. There are training costs with the structure of the International Tax Department. So I understand that the support of international organizations to the tax administrations in the region is really, really important. And so is the network of knowledge. I think it works very well based on the experience we have, and knowing the experiences that were also successful, and those that fail. I also believe it's important to see why we failed with the procedures or with the determination of the taxes. It seems to me that we have a new challenge ahead of us in addition to all those that Gonzalo and the previous participants mentioned. In the future, we will face the challenge of the global minimum tax, which is already in Pillar 2. And this global minimum tax implies a thorough reform of international tax rules in an otherwise globalized and digitized world. And to talk a little bit about it, I'd like to ask Alberto Berriex. Alberto, can you turn your camera on? I have it on, but it's not working. Sorry. And I'm also going to ask you to let me know when the five minutes are up. Please. I'll let you know. But since your knowledge is so broad, I know I'll want to hear a little bit of everything you've got. Alberto, in order to protect this tax base and prevent erosion, which is the primary objective of the global minimum tax, in your opinion, does it provide any benefit or is it more of a detriment to small or developing countries? Uh, I thought about this when you commented on the tax pillar. But, back to the subject of the camera, my wife just passed by and said to me, do you see? You're fat so better not turn the camera on. I got off on the wrong foot. Luckily, the camera didn't work. Well, back to the point. Why do I have exemptions from income tax? For two reasons basically. Let's go to the technical part, as well as the administrative part. The exemptions are directly a loss of sovereignty. But losses of sovereignty always occur. If I'm negotiating with a number of countries, I'm relinquishing my sovereignty when I decide not to impose administrative or tariff restrictions. But if I enter the international market for capital and goods and services, I will have to give in to that sovereignty. So, the issue of losing sovereignty is nonsense. But giving in on income tax? Why? For two reasons. First, because I have negative externalities, as we economists like to say. That is, I don't have enough manpower. I don't have sufficient infrastructure. I don't have enough legal certainty, neither at the institutional or infrastructure level. So that's why I excuse a little income tax. Second, which is a bit more sophisticated, is to develop an idle resource. It has often been used for a new industry. I know that later, 
new industries are 150 years old and are still protected, mainly by tariffs, so let's forget about that argument. But there is a valid argument, especially the externalities. In other words, I make up for what I do not have in relative terms with other countries. Legal security, investment, good infrastructure. I have a range of benefits. First, cut down abuse. And abuse can be seen in two ways, internally and externally. Internally, it's very clear. When I provide an exemption to a highly profitable industry, what I'm doing is directly giving a totally redundant benefit. When traveling with Martin Bess, he took some cigars along with him. And he said, the best cigars are produced here and also, we're the ones that sell the most. I was in a trade-free zone, I didn't pay anything. I said, if you're the best and the one that sells the most, you've got to pay something. In general, these large profits serve to transfer benefits. In other words, to abuse what is created by the other partner jurisdictions I do business with or have financial or commercial relationships for goods and services. Is that clear? I won't name any of the countries. We'd have to spend the whole night here if I did that. Now let's take a look at a second benefit. I think this one is very important. It creates horizontal equity. For example, I'm in a free trade zone. The majority of the free trade zones are in Central America. The free zones in Central America sell without paying practically any taxes, except in the case of the Dominican Republic, which has a minor deduction, which is not on actual revenue but on the sale. Those within pay all the taxes. Anyone in those free trade zones pays nothing. There are a thousand ways to use the free trade zone to kill domestic revenue. Someone could tell me, I'm able to control because I have control mechanisms. But they'd have to be perfect to know that the company I have in the free trade zone, which is a high-tech firm, does not supply a supermarket in the state capital. And so I'm milking the income. In other words, I make a transfer of profits. So it works as an advantage at the level of horizontal equity. And it dictates the calculation of the tax for the tax authorities. Because there is a tax for mega companies that is calculated using a unitary system that divides according to a formula. Another tax for large companies. Another for social security. Another for sectoral systems. And another 4,000 for incentives, etc. If we have a minimum tax. Based on. Obviously, because administrations don't trust each other. But based not on taxable earnings, but on accounting profit. Because it's also a matter of trust. With this minimum tax we'll have a minimum floor. That will instruct us. And it will let us give all the benefits we want. But there's always a minimum. It's like that old African joke. Sakandunga or death? Basically, a joke about being between a rock and a hard place. You may prefer death, but first there will be a bit of Sakandunga. So this minimum will provide us with the clout to at least collect something and bring about administrative order. We have a fourth problem, then a fifth, which I don't know if I have time to get into. We have a transition problem. Many of these benefits are granted through contracts. These contracts are signed by the governments. This is why, we, and this is in the article we published with Martin Bess, Emilio, and Ubaldo, which is featured here. We've come up with two solutions. We're currently writing about this on a blog, and we included it in the article that we published. First, we have to provide timeframes and be able to do what's known as a phase-in. What is a phase-in? It's basically giving these countries three years or five years. I'd give it three, but it doesn't really matter. And then they pay successively until they get to 15. But I think we have to start now. This data, as it had been with free trade zones before, doesn't work. That's the experience we have. We have to do this, and we've got to do it now. A second option is to make a multilateral agreement. The same is being done in Pillar 2 itself for capital revenues. And now I come to one last point. The organization. When this huge effort is made, one that was led by the OSD, but one that we all support, a political problem emerges. 
representative democracy was born under the slogan, no taxation without representation. Now we're coming up with another type of taxation. What refer to it in this article as, untaxation by unbalanced negotiation. Where obviously the powerful, the G20 and even the corporations, mega companies, have great power. We're in a process that we refer to as an agreed membership. Martin Best doesn't like it very much, but it's the reality. So that's it. You'll have a legitimacy problem. So we'll need to seek out a stronger institutional organization. And more representative. The second point is a technical problem. All these processes that are happening are the same as what was done in the transparency process. Where bank secrecy has been lifted, associations to holders have been eliminated. And countries today, which I figured I'd die seeing them with bank secrecy, do exchanges with more than 100. It's a process of learning by doing. And it's a process for which we have a lot of responsibility. Because we have to help ourselves and help the countries. Learning by doing entails plenty of mistakes. And these mistakes politically compromise the rest of the structure. So, we've got a very major challenge. First, getting tax policy to help the tax administration. Milka Casanegra said, tax administration in Latin America is tax policy. I tell her, simple tax policy, and we're seeing that in the stipulations, amount A, amount B, etc. tax policy is tax administration. And if they both don't work, there will be no taxation. And a second point, and this is where I'll wrap up. It seems that we have to try to make sure that the cooperation does not only involve collaborating with tax administrations and having a process that is viable. What do I mean by that? When we make companies declare once a year in pillar one, as in the case in my country, or every three months, in the case of Chile, in those we're taxing, because in some, we are not taxing at all. Remember that domestic companies pay within 20 days. Meaning that Google, through pillar one, will declare once a year and control it however it can. But for the other I request an electronic invoice, because it's a big bakery that's around the corner from me. In fact, it's making me fat, unfortunately. But it gives me a lot of pleasure. So if we don't level off quickly. And to that end, for example, for everything to do with digital services. If we don't move quickly towards an electronic invoice. If we don't convince the European Union that it's not a violation to post the electronic invoice with a tax intervention of the business. Which has been proven not to be. Or if we don't convince the United States, which is always important. Because now the minimum tax is different in the United States, in the amount I think it's probably even better than Pillar 2. Because it has the same 15%, but they deduct incentives. There are certain limitations, but it needs to be done. If we don't convince them to loosen their federalism and move towards an electronic invoice. If the world doesn't shift to a total global electronic invoice, even for financial transactions. Except, of course, foreign currency exchange. If this doesn't take place, we'll have a world that is completely unbalanced administratively, which will make it impossible for us to apply any of these instruments. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Alberto, for everything you mentioned about the challenges and benefits, particularly digitalization and e-invoicing on international terms, as well as the importance of taxation. That makes us think for three days, at least. But we're trying to find ways. Trying to find some ways to support countries. And we've been drawing on the know-how of experts in the region as well as outside the region. I think this is also a big mistake by the international organizations when they support tax authorities. And speaking of cooperation and collaboration between international organizations, I think there is a tool that is being developed by CIAT, the IDB, and EUROSOCIAL. It's used to make an assessment of maturity in terms of international taxes. 
and to address international disputes. Specifically on tax disputes in the international area, I'd like to invite Ubaldo Gonzalez, who has extensive knowledge in this field. He can tell us a bit more about whether this tool can provide support to tax authorities. And what's your understanding of international tax disputes, especially in the region, as well as the challenges? Thank you very much, Ubaldo. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Monica, and it's a pleasure to be with everyone here. Two things about the speakers who preceded me. The first is about Alberto, whose discourse is so rich in references, as usual. It is easier to read Borges than to understand Alberto's speech, but it is always a pleasure to hear him. And the second one concerning what Gonzalo said about the difficulties. I'd like to announce that we're working on a product to help smaller countries better manage international taxation. We are looking to offer solutions in three areas. First, the purely legal part, that is, how to land on national legislation. This entire stream of pillars, from the OECD, the BPS issues, the multilateral BPS agreement, etc., now comes with the two pillars as well. It's all quite complex, and we're trying to simplify the legal overview to introduce it to the countries. Second, we're also working to provide administrative guidance on how to organize for international taxation. And another part of this product that we hope to offer in 2023 deals with the tax administration's stance toward the company. It's a cultural change that should lead us to a different dialogue. A new dialogue with major companies. Based on what? Grounded on justified trust and transparency and mutual exchange of information. It is here that, to some degree, this idea ties in with the idea of arbitration and mild forms of tax dispute resolution. This is important for Latin American tax administrations to have streamlined and efficient dispute resolution procedures. It's quite clearly a factor in attracting foreign direct investment, and it's something we're sorely lacking in the region. That's why we've been working on it for nearly a year. We're teaming up with our friends at CIE to produce a product, which Gonzalo had described in his presentation. It's a toolbox to help guide tax administrations in preventing tax conflicts. I'll give you an example. If an auditor is performing a check, like the one Marcia told us about, it's important that there's an internal quality control. It's essential that these operations are well-grounded, that the facts are thoroughly proven, and that the legal rationale is clear. Because, otherwise, atypical regulatory measures could lead to disputes in court. And often we can't collect anything from them. And indeed, they produce a lot of damage and a bad reputation for the country as a hub for investments. So, we're looking to prevent disputes due to arbitrary or unreasonable claims. And for nascent legal actions, we want more effective ways to resolve them than escalation through the appeals and appeals system to the Supreme Court 18 years later, when the law is no longer relevant or the company no longer exists. And those types of things that happen to us so often. None of this is very easy. There are two cultures that collide here. The administrative culture of the Napoleonic Civil Code, which is what we have in countries with a culture of Latin tradition, and the tradition of Anglo-Saxon law, which is a lot more inclined to seek friendly or out-of-court settlement procedures. But considering this global economy and global taxation, you have to do something. Because you can't just say that our solution is different from that advocated by the Americans, British or Australians, or some other countries of the European Union as well. 
there is strong pressure to introduce mandatory tax arbitration, and the risk is serious. I think we all believe that the risk is in corruption. Because up until 10 or 12 years ago, there was a dogma that the tax credit is unavailable. Once the tax administration enters this credit in the state's accounts, no official can dispose of it. Only a judge or court can modify or cancel that credit. Now, this dogma of unavailability of credit, as I previously mentioned, is being revised. Even in the multilateral agreement that they're going to impose on us for Pillar 1 of the OECD. To receive market share from large digital multinationals, there is a mandatory and binding arbitration. That's our challenge, and that's why we're taking on this toolkit project. It's designed to provide some guidance to tax authorities, some guidelines to help them can act with transparency and confidence. Making sure your officials don't end up being sued in a court of law for abusing the laws by making faulty or corrupt dispute resolution procedures. There's a case that always comes to mind, one that's not a dispute over a tax credit, but a dispute over a public credit. You probably know about it, but if you don't, you can look it up on the internet, because it is an exemplary story. It's the case of the sale of Adidas. A French businessman named Bernard Tappy sold Adidas to a French public bank, Credit Lyonnais, for 300 or 400 million, something like that. And the following year, Credit Lyonnais sold Adidas to third parties for 700 million. He made 400 million in one year. So, Mr. Tappy reported the bank to the state for deceiving him into a fraudulent transaction. And the state settled it in the form of arbitration. The state decided to submit this to arbitration, and the arbitrators ruled in favor of Tappy. They awarded him the right to receive those 400 million, and also included 10% moral damages, amounting to around 450 million euros to Tappy for this alleged deceit by the French government towards this citizen. I insist that it was submitted to arbitration. And that's where the unavailability of public credits comes in. In fact, the minister at the time was Mrs. Lagarde. She had had a brilliant career in the monetary fund and in the institutions throughout the European Union. And they convicted her, too. Yes, she was arrested, of course. But she was also convicted of the crime of embezzlement or malfeasance in the exercise of her duties. Until now, this example. I insist, it's not a tax credit, but it's a public credit. It's an exemplary lesson on how unresolved arbitrations can bring headaches to everyone. What's my point? And with that I'll wrap up, Monica. My point is that this product that we're developing, this digital maturity model that we're putting together with our friends at CIT should provide confidence to tax administrations when it comes to structuring their policies for amicable resolution of tax disputes. It's agencies and procedural guarantees to make this as a transparent approach. I emphasize we need this swift resolution, this prevention of tax conflicts to increase the attractiveness of the investment. However, we need to do this carefully and remember to respect to the law, to prevent problems from getting out of hand. Thank you for the opportunity to take part, and I return the floor. Thanks a lot, Ubaldo. There's a lot here to reflect on from what Gonzalo, Alberto, and Ubaldo said in terms of international taxation and the challenges we face. I've been thinking about other things, how to coordinate tax benefits with a single tax that we'll have a little later. I wonder what capacity building be like for for tax authorities. 
What will the biggest challenge be that we'll face at that point in time? I have a question from the audience, which I found interesting, because it made me think about everything we talked about today. Based on your experience, what was the most challenging capability development? The hardest thing to do so far? I was thinking, because we have two institutions here, the IDB and CIAT. CIAT has also been collaborating and has been active in the region for a long time, mainly in the area of training personnel. So I wanted to go back to Gonzalo to talk a bit about the training of personnel they did. What is the most difficult challenge they've encountered in international taxation issues thus far? What do you consider most important? Well, I think the toughest challenge that a tax administration faces is to generate sustainability. Because, when it comes to implementing any international tax issue, they remain focused and exert a lot of efforts. But one thing I see is that there are countries that go back and forth that have difficulty maintaining knowledge. So I think this might be the biggest challenge. Not doing, but maintaining and gradually evolving. This topic is complex. I think the challenge will depend on the country. Some countries have more needs than others. Countries like Bermuda don't have income taxes, but it does exchange information. Their biggest challenge, more than anything, is the exchange of information. But it's an atypical case. And for other countries, I think one of the more significant challenges they encounter is to get organized first. To have rather fine-tuned strategic planning to be able to set priorities. And the second question, I believe, is choosing the battles. The matter of accurately identifying the risk. If we know the risk, we can figure out what to do. I believe that simply understanding the risk is one of the key challenges, whatever the specific issue to be addressed is. Which BEPS action it fits into, or what the situation is. Thanks a lot, Gonzalo, yes. There's plenty to do. And a lot that needs to continue, too. And I still have one more question. And that question is for Ubaldo. Ubaldo, with the experience you also have with the Spanish tax administration, where you worked for a long time, there is some difficulty with countries in the region, but also outside the region. Like knowing what's going on, what are the operations that a multinational, which is based in country A, for example, is conducting in country B, or outside the borders? How do we keep track of this activity of multinationals? Thank you. Just like Gonzalo said, knowing what the risk is, there is a tool available for everyone right now. And yet, it's far from many. The country-by-country country report, BPS Action 13, is really the only real advantage for developing countries. It's a substantial and real advantage. They could achieve something with others, but Action 13 is clearly the tool we need. BPS Action 13, the country-by-country country report, provides an X-ray of the multinational. It's like you're an orthopedist. Just by looking at this X-ray, you're able to see whether the subsidiary in Uruguay has a tax risk or not. Because that's where the permanent establishments in the United States will come from. It will appear if there are IMAS centers in third countries. The effective tax rates in each of the jurisdictions where it's located. So, with a bit of expertise or a bit of experience in international taxation, 
a somewhat senior auditor may determine whether it is worth auditing the subsidiary in the country or not. And if you are going to audit, you can decide whether you are going to do a general audit or whether you are going to restrict yourself exclusively to royalty issues or permanent establishment issues or transfer pricing, etc. It seems to me, Monica, not to linger too long on the examples, that what countries need to do is to get into the system of the inclusive framework and the information exchange agreements between jurisdictions. It's a bit tricky, but it's not all that difficult. A lot of other countries have access to country-by-country reports, and that should be the short-term goal of those who don't yet have that access. Thank you so much, Ubaldo. I know you have to get to the airport, and I really appreciate that last answer. So I'd like to now wind down this podcast. Thank you to the panelists. Thank you very much to the Tadat Secretariat for the invitation, for the opportunity to have this space to discuss international taxation. Thanks a lot to the participants who presented today's cases. It was really, really interesting. I think we have a recording of the podcast, so anyone who hasn't had a chance to listen from the beginning can access the recording later. The links are available on LinkedIn, YouTube, and on the Tadat page itself. If there are other questions, or if you'd like to send us feedback, you can also reach us through the Tadat Secretariat website. And I would like to thank Justin, the Tadat Secretary, for this initiative, as well as all the participants. Thank you. The Tadat Podcast is available free of charge. The views expressed in the Tadat Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent those of the International Monetary Fund or the IMF policy. Materials from the podcast may be reproduced with proper attribution. Comments and correspondence may be emailed to podcast at tadat.org. Tadat is a collaborative undertaking of the following partners. France, Germany, the International Monetary Fund, Japan, the Netherlands, Norway, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, and the World Bank.